I have had moments where I was deported from a country on a story. It was my biggest dream to cover a story for National Geographic and I was deported and never allowed back and this was my life's work. I didn't know what to do and I remember laying in bed and crying for three days straight. I just didn't even get up. I was so sad and I am so grateful now because I would not be doing the work I'm doing today if that didn't happen. I had tunnel vision. I was so obsessed with telling these stories in this particular place. And I think that that's happened over and over again for me when I am just constantly fighting to get to something. And then I turn around and there's another story right there waiting to be told. Welcome to the We Are Photographers podcast from Creative Live. I'm your host, Kenna Klosterman, bringing you true stories from behind the lens and behind the lives of your favorite photographers, filmmakers, and creative industry game changers. From their struggles to their wins, we get the real human stories about why they do what they do. I believe there is something to learn from everyone's story. Listen, get inspired, and discover why in the end, your creative journey is all worth it. Amy Vitale is an award-winning photographer and documentary filmmaker. She's a contract photographer with National Geographic and a Nikon ambassador. Amy has traveled to over 100 countries and focused her early career covering conflict. She's shifted her work to telling today's most compelling wildlife and environmental stories. Amy recently published a best-selling book, Panda Love, on the secret lives of pandas. She lectures for the National Geographic Live series and gives workshops all over the world. Her photographs have been commissioned by nearly every international publication and exhibited around the world in museums and galleries. In this episode, Amy takes us behind the scenes on some of her long-term projects with elephants in Northern Kenya and the last of the world's white rhinos. She explains why she believes the indigenous communities she's worked with hold the keys to saving what's left. We talk about how photography helps us understand humanity, the natural world, our environment, and universal truth. Amy tells us about being deported from a country where she'd been working for five years on a National Geographic story, and how what we may call failures can lead to our greatest transformations. Amy encourages us all to fall in love with the world around us, find long-term stories in our own backyards, and use our voices to make a difference. This is We Are Photographers with Amy Vitale, and this is her story. Amy Vitale, thank you so much for being here in person back in our Seattle studios. It is awesome to have you here always. It is awesome to see you. Oh, thank <laughs> Be you. Here. Thank you. All right. I want to start our conversation with now and then we'll kind of go back in time. Ooh. But what are you working on right now that gets you the most excited that you can share with us? Hmm. So yes, some projects I can share, others I can't, but I continue to focus on some of the places that I've been working for many years already. And it's those communities that I feel like 
I mean, they're the ones making the change, but I can help amplify their incredibly beautiful voices um, to the world. And, and that's really those projects. A lot of them are in northern Kenya. Let's talk about the elephants. In okay, I know the elephants have gotten a lot of attention, but it's a beautiful story that began uh, they're actually coming on their third year anniversary, but it probably started about six years ago when it was just a dream. And the dream was to create the first ever indigenous owned and run elephant sanctuary in all of Africa. And everybody at the time said it was impossible. They didn't have political power, the, you know, no funding, that it just wasn't going to happen. And, you know, the first time I heard it, I just captured my heart for sure and I knew that they would do it I just knew it and they did and I've been following their story from the you know from all the the highlights to the challenges and um, and I continue to follow it and try to create um, you know it's expensive it turns out to raise orphaned elephants and so you know, I feel like my role has evolved to to try to create um, a catalyst to get more donors in, and um, but it's it's a really powerful story. The other piece of it, which I love, is that it's the first uh, sanctuary that's hiring Indigenous Samburu women to take care of the elephants. And for some reason, in a very male-dominated world, a lot of people thought that that was not a good idea and that it was impossible. And they are incredible. And it's I, I love the piece of this story because it's not just a story about how people relate to the wild around them, but it's actually a story about how they relate to one another. And so over three years, I've seen enormous transformation in the way people relate to one another. And that's um, been really inspiring. What is it about the culture that you've learned or that why why did people think women couldn't take care of the elephants? Well, I think it's the same as, as cultures all over the world. I mean, there's always excuses. Women have children to take care of. Women are too little. Those are big you know, uh, big, dangerous creatures, um, you know, all the old same stereotypes that um, are frankly universal. It doesn't, it's not just there. Um, but, you know, I think the same reasons and, and what was so, so wonderful on one of my trips, these young Samburu men walked for like 12 hours through a desert to come and I saw them there and uh, asked them what what are you doing here and they said oh well you know we heard these stories about Samburu women taking care of elephants and we could not believe that that was true we had to see it with our own eyes because if you can actually imagine from their perspective they're living with these wild elephants who are dangerous and and do kill people I mean that's part of the conflict is human wildlife conflict um, you know it's it's actually these days less about poaching and more about the human wildlife conflict because of um, people kind of running into elephants there's less habitat there's climate change so it brings the humans and the wild uh, elephants together more often and so they are dangerous that is true I, I understand why they felt the way they do and it's not frankly just women working with elephants it's any human being working with you know 
elephants that have been orphaned, who are traumatized, who are feeling vulnerable, and they do, you know, they're all dangerous creatures. Amy, there are so many stories out there in the world, especially important ones that photography can tell. So how do you find your stories or do they find you? That's a great question. And I think a little bit of both. I do find them and they find me. And um, I would say that the stories I find are the ones that are, for example, like the pandas. They're obvious. They're out there. Everybody's seen and knows what a panda bear is or, you know, and, and we think we understand what the story is. But I like to find the most obvious things and then turn them on their head. And the whole reason I got started in in northern Kenya was because I was invited 10 years ago to document the last of eight northern white rhinos. At the time, they were moving four of them from a zoo back to Africa in this last-ditch effort to save the whole species. When I met those really gentle, hulking, ancient, ancient species, it just captured my heart again. And I, I, I just wanted to understand, well, this is actually like watching extinction on your watch unfolding in front of you. And I wanted to understand, first of all, why this is happening and what are the solutions. And I started reading everything and realized that we were always telling the story And talking about the poaching, talking about habitat loss, talking about the problems, but not really offering much in the way of solutions. Where do we go from here? Most of it was about, well, let's militarize people. And it's always defined as like fighting a war, the poaching war, the, you know, and these really kind of masculine um, way of seeing the world. And the most obvious thing about this story was to me, was always left out. And I began thinking, well, what about the people living with the wildlife, the indigenous communities side by side? What do they think? Are they all poachers? Like, what's actually going on there? And so I made many, many trips. And this is a story that I've been working on literally for a decade now. And on, you know, like an onion, just sort of finding piece by piece the different layers, the complexity of it all. It's not so simple. It's not this black and white thing. And it's, it's, I do think there's a lot of hope and solutions and answers. And it doesn't all involve guns and militarizing populations. You know, I believe and what I've seen is that indigenous communities hold the keys to saving what's left. And There are these unbelievable people on the front lines who are um, creating change, creating change in big and small ways. And I feel like by telling their stories, I'm, I'm just sharing it to give us all the ability to dream of applying it to other places, using it as a blueprint. And, and frankly, if there are storytellers out there, you know, I, one thing I would say is that there's so many other stories just like this in your backyard of people against all odds, a group of individuals making great changes. And I think those stories deserve our attention. We tend to not um, focus on the quieter stories. Uh, something about, you know, 
uh, sensationalizing things and, and showing the drama and the violence and how dangerous it is, that seems to get the headlines. But the truth is, I think across the globe, everywhere I go, I see, you know, I see changes, but it's quieter. It's a little harder to tell. It takes a little more time and patience. And, um, but there's, there's so much hope out there. In all your experience, do you think that we, that the darkness and the light need each other to exist or that, yeah, that to, to make sense, what is light, what is dark? Yeah. And I guess that's, I mean, that's, boy, that's a philosophical question because, you know, it's from where you stand, what does darkness and lightness look like? It all means different things to different people. Um, I would say that, you know, to really simplify that, that there are challenges, but that we need to talk about those challenges we face but we also need to talk about the ways forward. I often think that we have so much more in common than we realize, so much more that unifies us than separates us. For some reason, it's just a lot less sexy to tell those kinds of stories. Um, But I think things are changing, and I think that part of that is just diversity of viewpoint. And I do think part of it is also empowering communities to tell their own stories and that's part of what I like my next version of myself is sort of passing the torch on I want to share the skills that I've been given um, and and pass that on to others I really appreciate that you are out there to quote unquote pass the torch but I know you're not done yet No, I'm definitely not done yet. And I just mean that we have to uplift each other and that, you know, our work, it's not a zero-sum game. There is room enough for all of us. There is no shortage of stories. The parameters have changed greatly since I first began. Media has definitely transformed and had so many new versions of itself. And I think the key to success is being adaptable and finding opportunity everywhere, not waiting for somebody to to um, give you opportunity. And I also think part of that is collaboration and just lifting one another up as much as we can. 100% agree. Uh, there, There is enough. There is an abundance. And to your point, there is an abundance of stories out there. So and the, yeah, and the need for great storytelling. I mean, that is not going away. And I think there's probably more of a hunger for, frankly, visual storytelling than ever in the history of, of humanity. You know, it may not be in the way you imagine your career, but I think viewing everything as an opportunity, even if you get asked, you know, I, I see some people and they may say oh wedding photography and I'm like that is a great opportunity view it like a cultural you know uh, experience and everything is an opportunity so let's go back Uh, you used to photograph conflict what drew you to that I thought 
that those were the most powerful stories. And I wanted to understand how the world worked and why it was the way it was. And I, I just wanted to understand these things too. I also think as young photographers, we are taught that those are the most powerful stories. And what I learned after covering the horrors of the world, uh, that yes, I never want to diminish the importance of telling those stories, but that's one tiny piece of a much larger perspective. And over time, I realized I wanted to give a broader vision of what the world really looks like. That it wasn't actually fair and honest to present the world like the, the, as just conflict after conflict after conflict. Actually, what I discovered in every single one of those conflicts was great resilience, great, uh, gosh, I mean, people. I, I saw the best and worst of humanity, but actually I saw the best of humanity that has inspired me to this day. And I think that is what I seek out now because I know that we are all capable of so much more than we ever imagined for ourselves. And I seek that out. Does an image come to mind of yours where that represents that resilience? Oh, I mean, so there's so many stories, but the one that always comes to the top of my mind is when I was living in Kashmir, there was a moment where militants were posting signs all over the capital, the summer capital um, of Srinagar. And they said, if any woman doesn't wear a burqa, she will have acid thrown on her face. And it was a terrifying moment because, well, women didn't all wear burqas anyway. I mean, it was not Afghanistan. And I was terrified. And I knew that a lot of all the women living there must have felt the same way. So I just thought, how do I visually illustrate this? And so I found a tailor shop and there was a woman inside buying a burqa. And I asked her if I could photograph her. And as I was photographing her, she leans over and whispers to me in English and says, you know, I think the tailors made this up as a way of drumming up more business. And you know, she was making a joke in one of the most terrifying moments for everybody living there. And that I felt was the truth. That was how Kashmiris are. That is how people are all over the world in the worst situations. I'm always just blown away and humbled, deeply humbled by their ability to, you know, go on and be the best versions of themselves and find humor. And there's so many stories like that. It's given me such a different perspective of the world. And I mean, all these places I've had the great privilege of living. You know, I've also found people with the least are often the most generous. And I just want to understand where this all comes from. And there's just deeper human truths there, these universal truths that have impacted me so so deeply. I remember reading the newspaper and really just seeing places, sometimes continents, defined in these very narrow terms that frankly 
are racist and backwards. And I don't think people mean to do that, but it's almost like by defining entire continents of people in narrow ways and leaving out so much of of who people really are, um, the very fact of leaving it out, at best it's half a truth and at worst it's a lie. I mean, it's it's just ignorance in a lot of ways. And I do think it's hard to truly understand one another unless you go and spend time and really listen to one another. And I encourage all of us to befriend people and things, you know, even wildlife and, and the things that we may be a little afraid of and bring them into your life. And then you realize there is nothing to fear. Um, that is the greatest, I don't know if it sounds, I don't mean to be preachy at all. It's just, I think it's about breaking down the things that we're afraid of. And um, you realize how beautiful this world really is and all the people on it. You can go to a place and, and help people tell their own stories. How do you help animals tell their stories? You know, after going down the path of covering the worst of humanity in a way, I realized that everything is so deeply connected, interconnected, that, you know, you can't talk about one thing without talking about the other, and that the natural world, our environment, is a part of everything, and that all those stories I had been telling about humanity were actually also stories about the world we live in. And I feel like now, today, the biggest story out there is the planet we live on. You know, it's a shared little life raft. There is a oneness here. There are no borders. We're, we're in this together. And so part of that has definitely made me realize that my focus should be now on people and nature and our connectedness. And I think not enough of us are actively engaged in the future of this planet. And all of us need to be a voice. All of us need to understand that um, it's going to impact us as individuals, us as societies. Um, and, and there's so much we can all be doing. What do you tell people or what do you find in conversations about how we can all make a difference. I think it's fair to feel overwhelmed and feel like, you know, one individual act doesn't make a difference. But it's not about that. It's about taking baby steps and becoming aware. Amy, I know you're one of the founding members of Ripple Effect Images. And I wonder if you can tell us about what that is. Yes, that was the brainchild of Annie Griffiths, another National Geographic photographer and just extraordinary woman. She created Ripple Effect Images, and the team is made up of writers, photographers, filmmakers, scientists, and we create stories about women, particularly in developing places that are being impacted by climate change. And we want to highlight the fact that when you help a woman, she helps 
the entire community and and also that women are being impacted the most by climate change they have to walk farther to get water they um, you know their husbands leave them with all of the children and they are uh, left in these in these places left to deal with a lot but when you when you give her the the skills and the tools I, and one place I really would love to mention is friendship in Bangladesh. It was one of the first stories I covered. And a woman named, one woman named Runa Khan began this uh, nonprofit. And she basically went into the most remote places where women being, were being impacted by, you know, a rapidly changing climate, rising seas, more violent cyclones, more frequent cyclones and she instead of them all moving to the city where they would end up living in slums she um, created floating schools she gave them skills so that they could uh, create um, you know handicrafts and clothing and uh, instead of leaving their village so she did all of these incredible things but it's stories like hers and others that we choose to highlight and then we give that material away to governments and companies that are supporting um, these organizations and these women. So I think the hope is to create that awareness that when you help a woman, you're helping the whole society. What have you learned about the way you're perceived? I think when people sort of underestimate you, use it. I mean, that was my sneaky superpower because people always and still do underestimate me. And I just let them. And I sort of go through and and unexpectedly surprise them. And I don't worry about what they're thinking about anymore. But, I mean, it, it was frustrating. I remember for, for many years I would apply for grants and usually if they were written grants only and I didn't have an interview, a face-to-face interview, I would get them. But if I made it, I usually also made it to the last round and I'd have the interview, I never got the grant. And um, I don't know why, but I definitely think there's something about the way we look that we just underestimate one another and maybe we're all guilty about it we all have stereotypes in our head the thing is to constantly ask yourself the question like am I prejudging this person and um, I work hard to question my own feelings and one thing I would say that's so interesting is so much of it is internal and that word confidence comes back again but I often think sometimes instead of thinking about all the things the world is preventing you from accomplishing, turn that around and ask yourself, like, what am I doing to prevent myself? Because there's obstacles for every single human being. And I just think it's reframing that narrative again and just building yourself up, reframing the narrative in your own head, telling yourself, I can do this instead of that negative voice and, you know, doing it baby step by baby step. Things don't happen overnight. They take time. And so much of it is confidence. But I think, 
I think it's very easy to blame the world around us, and it's time now to, I mean, this is what I tell myself, <laughs> just go out and continue to do the things that you dream about. It's so easy to get overwhelmed by what's going on in the world or not feel like getting up after getting knocked down. Can you tell us about a time that you were confronted with your own, say, self-limiting beliefs and how did you break through that? Because I think that is often the bed of creativity um, when you are put in these challenging situations. We've listen, we've all been through devastating, you know, um, failures and and I I actually don't even like that word failure because look, we all make mistakes and we fall flat on our face and those are actually the most transformative moments. Turn it around. And I have had moments where I was um you know, deported uh, from a country on a story. It was my biggest dream to cover a story for National Geographic. And I was deported and never allowed back. And this was my life's work. And I had already spent five years working there and I didn't know what to do. And I remember laying in bed and crying for three days straight. I just didn't even get up. I was so sad. And not only that, all my friends were there. I just wasn't allowed back in. And I I am so grateful now because I would not be doing the work I'm doing today if that didn't happen. I had tunnel vision. I was so obsessed with telling these stories in this particular place. And I think that that's happened over and over again for me when I am just constantly fighting to get through, to get to something and then I turn around and there's another story right there waiting to be told and and by the way I don't wait for you know assignments and people to pay me it's like start the work yourself just get it going and then you know then start applying for grants build a body of work up first and create something that people can understand what you're imagining but yeah defeat or failure those are our most powerful moments to transform ourselves. And it's all perspective, all of it. At this point in your career, you can kind of look back and think about yourself when you first started. What kind of advice would you give Amy way back then with based on what you know today? So when I was a young girl, I was painfully shy, gawky, introverted, and afraid of the world. And I just want to remind all those, I mean, anybody that feels that way, um, that we all have something beautiful to share. We all have a powerful voice. It's in all of us. And I just want everybody to Remember that, that the narratives we tell ourselves are so, so important. So, you know, kind of turn off that narrative if it's negative and just go out and engage with the world around you and you will be so pleasantly surprised. And also that we are mirrors to one another and empathy. Empathy is the wellspring to creativity. It is everything. I think that... Um, there is room enough for all of us and try. 
Beautiful advice. <laughs> Amy, where can we follow everything that you are creating and how you are embracing the world? <laughs> where can we follow you? Check out your latest book, All About oh, Pandas. Thank you. Well, I have a website, but um, you can sign up for newsletters there. I am also very active on Instagram. And um, you can always just shoot me a good old fashion email and it's just my name at amyvitale.com and that's with an I. Thank you so much for your time, for being here in person with us again on Creative Live and it's just a pleasure and honor to have you here. Likewise, thank you. (laughs) I'm Kenna Klosterman and you've been listening to the We Are Photographers podcast from Creative Live. If you're not already, join the over 1 million people following Amy on Instagram at Amy Vitale and check out her site, amyvitale.com. At Creative Live, we believe there's a creator and a photographer in all of us. And yes, that means you. If you're looking to get fresh perspectives, inspiration, or skills to boost your hobbies, business, or life, we've got a class or two or thousands for you to check out just head over to creativelive.com where you can also listen to all of our podcast episodes at creativelive.com slash podcast. You can also subscribe, rate, and review us wherever it is that you listen to podcasts. We love to hear from you and I read each and every review. You can stay up to date with everything happening at Creative Live by following us on social media at Creative Live everywhere. Thank you again to Amy Vitale, and I'll see you all next week for another episode of We Are Photographers.